Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Quarter. Quarter is an all-in-one investor relations app that provides frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and more. With Quarter, investors can keep up to date with all their companies while on the move. I personally use it every earning season so that I can keep up with my portfolio companies while I'm on my commute to the office. They also just released a cool new feature that allows users to search across all transcripts. That means you could search and see how many companies mention terms like inflation or cost pressure or recession or even metaverse, you name it. Uh, and the best part of all, the app's 100% free and it's on both iOS and Android. So go find it on your app store by searching Quarter. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E. That's Quarter, Q-U-A-R-T-R. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is our typically Thursday deep dive interview, but we had a little scheduling mishap. So this is coming out on our Friday and our deep dive interviews, we interview one analyst on a single stock. And today we're talking with Devin Lassar and we're talking about British American tobacco and really the, the tobacco industry generally. He goes through a great overview of, uh, I guess, the past, present, and potentially where he thinks the future will be for the industry. And so- uh, And then specifically hitting British American tobacco, uh, I guess if anyone's interested, tickers BATS or BTI in the United States. So we hit like, yeah, we hit the general and then any the uh, specific stuff with BTI. Any big highlights from the interview? Yeah. I mean, I guess, should we say what British American tobacco owns? Because we oh, don't, yeah, yeah. maybe that's a good overview. They own Camel, or why, why don't you load that up while I, while I talk about my favorite part? I, I like talking about the non-combustibles, which is non-cigarettes. Uh, they they own you know substantial stuff in vaping and nicotine pouches, and that category has been growing really really quickly. As former Swedish match shareholders, uh, you know it kind of hurt my heart listening to that because you know the bull case I think is quite compelling. So listening to that was fascinating, as well as their capital allocation strategy and what things could look like if the non-combustibles kind of start becoming a bigger part of the business as it might look like through, you know, maybe the 2025, 2030 period and how that could stabilize um, any of the volume declines and also keep, you know, revenue and profits uh, growing at a steady clip. Yep. And so in terms of brands, they own Lucky Strike, Newport, American Spirit, Camel. They own Grizzly as well. And then they've got some newer age products, I guess you could say, in Glow, Velo, and Views. Um, and then I guess before we let you guys get to the interview, I'll also mention that there was a, a bit of a background sound with uh, Devin's cat. So uh, if you hear that rattling, we'll um, try, we've tried to edit it out at this point, but uh, if you hear the rattling, yeah, just think of and, and you're annoyed by it, just think and laugh that it was his cat doing something. So, yeah. Yeah. It was a bit out of his control, but I think that's all we have for the intro. Without further ado, here's the interview. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, welcome in. Today we are joined by Devin Lassar. He is the author of Invariant, uh, which is a you. Know, if you just look up Invariant Substack or you look up Devin Lassar's name, uh, I'm sure you will find it. And we connected through Twitter, and you had 
I, th- I think we probably connected, or at least you and Brett did through shared interest in tobacco stocks. So kind of what, how did you end up covering the industry? What kind of interests you about it? Yeah. Um, so I, I fell into covering the tobacco and nicotine industry kind of by accident. Um, I first started researching the industry heavily in 2010. This was, you know, on the the back end of the GFC, and I'm not sure how how well you guys remember the GFC, but uh, even in 2010, there was a tremendous amount of uncertainty in the world. Um, there were still a lot of open wounds, and I think anyone that claims that they were confident that they knew the trajectory of the world, you know, they were kind of full of it, you know, cl- claiming that. And so I was running screens, um, came across, you know, just digging into the tobacco names and the numbers I saw simply weren't lining up with the narrative I had already built in my own head. In my life, I knew that the number of smokers were decreasing each year, volumes were going down, there was all this regulation. I assumed that these companies were were kind of going the way of the dodo. And yet when I combed through the numbers and I really started to put all the pieces together, I saw a story that was exactly the opposite. And so I'm like, all right, I, I gotta understand if I'm seeing this wrong or what I'm missing or, or you know, how does this make sense? So I, I do what I always do, which is, you know, I go and buy a bunch of books and start reading about history and, uh, try to make sense of it. But uh, for my own portfolio, I liked it just because you, 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 you look at the industry and there's a tremendous amount of inelastic demand. And so there's no cyclicality, you have pricing power, you have acting as a hedge against inflation and it just kind of a pillar of strength during times of uncertainty, if you look throughout history. And, and so, I didn't know exactly where it would lead me in terms of focusing on it, but I I knew it needed to be part of my personal portfolio for what my goals were. That makes total sense. You've you've researched, excuse me, the history of the nicotine industry for a long time, like you said, 10 plus years. What I guess, um, it's a long run, you know, everyone knows the big stories. It's been decades and decades of different things, regulation, Mm -hmm. scientific studies, different trends. What has led the industry to be where it is today? And then what is on the horizon for the future? And then after that, you know, we'll lead into British American tobacco. Great. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think people are familiar, at least with the recent history, maybe the last few decades. But the true history of tobacco goes back much further. Um, there, there's data showing, showing usage going back thousands of years. But what's interesting is that it didn't really make its way around the world, tobacco that is, um, until really the last several hundred years, where in in the late 15th century, Europeans came across it for the first time when they came to the Americas. But they saw the, the natives using it. They saw it as this kind of bizarre habit. They, they thought, thought it was just 
unsophisticated, something only, you know, a quote unquote savage would do. And it's bizarre to have smoke coming out of your, your mouth and nostrils. And it was kind of rejected initially. But then, you know, some Europeans started to try it. They go, oh, yeah, we kind of like this. And, and, and then they brought it back to Europe. And it, it just proliferated. And you, you saw the 16th century, it started to grow a little bit. Then the 17th century, it just completely took off all around the world. And you had all these rulers, even the, these monarchs who are, who are trying to control their population. They're, they're realizing that tobacco is maybe starting to get more control than they have over the population. And so they're trying to outlaw it and they're even outlawing it by threatening death to their populations. And that's not stopping people from, from, from smoking or, or using snuff or, or what have you. And, and so ultimately what ha happened is the, the, these countries just largely accepted that, well, tobacco is here. It's wildly profitable. We may as well try to monetize it as much as possible and, and, and use it to our, our benefit. And it, it, it's, it's wild. In the 18th century, we saw it ultimately leading to the war of independence for the United States, right? You have this, the Boston Tea Party, which really wasn't about tea, it was more about tobacco and, and how tobacco was being taxed and the indebtedness that the colonists are facing uh, from, from Britain. Um, but again, it, it seemingly has just been unstoppable and, and leading to more recent times, what we're maybe more familiar with in our, in our history is you have James Buchanan Duke and, and, you know, late 19th century, he, he starts using the first automated cigarette manufacturing machine. It increases production like a thousand percent. He starts supplying 40% of cigarettes in the United States, makes an outrageous amount of money, consolidates all the manufacturing in the U.S. In, into uh, the American Tobacco Company. Um, he decides he wants to take over the rest of the world, starting with uh, the, the market in Britain, goes over there. Imperial Tobacco, which was the leading company there, kind of retaliates and goes, well, we're gonna go for the US market. So they're going back and forth, realize, you know what? Makes a lot more sense for us to team up. So what they do is they decide, okay, American Tobacco gets the United States, Imperial gets Britain, and we're going to team up. We're going to create a joint venture to take over the rest of the world. We're going to name it British American Tobacco. Right? They were very, uh, they were very, <laughs> very innovative <laughs> with the name. Yeah, they were very innovative back then. Every company, I know we've looked at that period once, and it's all Americans, U.S. Steel, uh, American Tobacco, British American Tobacco. <laughs> right, uh, right to the point with the names, um, and. and Ultimately, what ended up happening was the U.S. Supreme Court lo looked at American Tobacco Company and said, yeah, this, you know, you guys are breaking all kinds of <laughs> antitrust issues. We got to split you up. So they, they split them up into four companies, American Tobacco, Ligate Myers, Reynolds, and Lorillard. 
and, and ultimately chopped up a little bit more American tobacco, uh, got split up, and, and then Duke was left controlling British American tobacco. Um, and, and that kind of takes us into to more recently, maybe the history people are more familiar with, um, in, including, you know, say say the last seventy years, where people really began to understand the the health risks uh, of cigarettes, and because of that, regulation started to become much more stringent. We started seeing health warnings on packages, restrictions on advertising. Smoking started to get banned in certain places, like like on uh, uh, plane travel, and, th and then of course there's the most well-known uh, regulation, which was the 1998 Master Settlement Agreement, which was seen at, at the time seen as crippling, where it, it looked at the original participating manufacturers, which was Philip Morris U USA, Reynolds. Brown and Williamson and Warlard said, hey, you have to make huge payments forever. <laughs> and also, by the way, we're completely restricting your advertising, your, your promotional work, and, and all, all your, your marketing efforts. And if you go back and, and you read headlines from right then, it just everyone was just hyper bearish on these names. They said, there is, there is, <laughs> There's no way these companies are surviving this. Like there, there's just no way. Um, and of course, the exact opposite happened, because when there's no advertising and marketing, it makes it impossible for for new competitors to enter the market. So these guys get to keep their market share. Since none of them are allowed to advertise, they get to cut their advertising budgets basically entirely. So now they're sitting on all this extra money and they go, well, okay, I guess we can start doing buybacks and upping our dividend and we'll, we'll start consolidating, which is exactly what, what they did. Uh, and since that point, we've seen basically everything that was split up from American tobacco company reconsolidated. Now the space globally is a oligopoly and there, there's a very short list of players that basically dominate the, the industry uh, on a global level. Um, so, so that's, that's kind of where, where we were just, just in, in recent history. This episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense. Stream is an expert interview transcript library with more than 10,000 interviews spanning across all industries, including tech, media, consumer goods, and plenty more. Not to mention 70% of these experts can be found only exclusively on Stream. Thanks to many of the interviews that I've read on Stream, I feel like I've gained a much more intimate understanding of the companies that I cover. And at this point, it has become an integral piece of my research process. So if you want to check out some of their transcripts for yourself, you can go to streamrg.co slash CCM and sign up for a free 14-day trial using the promo code CCM. Again, that's streamrg.co slash CCM, S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G dot C-O slash CCM. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I want to ask you too about the kind of where you think the future will go. Uh, but I think maybe save that towards some of the, yeah, I think we gotta, yeah, we'll, we'll maybe, yeah, save that for the end. Okay. Um, let's talk about British American tobacco specifically, which you kind of alluded to. Mm -hmm. Um, do you want to talk maybe about the, what their segments are today? I think if there's anything else in terms of the history that you think is relevant, maybe touch on that as well. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been, interesting to follow them and it, it's more fascinating to read about the entire history they've been around much longer than i have obviously um the trends in in combustible volumes is something i think most people are are completely familiar with they know that you know at, at least in the u.s smoking Kind of peaked in the 50s volumes started decline 60s and it's been in secular decline ever since and we can again look at you know health considerations more health conscientious consumer regulation increased taxes all these things impact that to varying degrees um, nonetheless that really hasn't stopped british american tobacco or the the industry as a whole from making more and more money and it really comes down to pricing power. Again, there's a tremendous amount of inelastic demand for, for cigarettes, right? And when you step back and you, and you think about it from a fundamental level, it's important to ask something in my mind as simple as like, what, what would the perfect product look like? And you know, if I were to answer that, it would be something very, very straightforward, something that's really easy for me to make, something that is really cheap for me to make, something that has a lot of perpetual demand, and something where I can charge a substantial premium so my margin's really fat, right? Like, this sounds perfect. But obviously, Economics 101 tells us that if you, you have that, competition is going to swoop in and undercut you, right? <laughs> and and without something more distinct as a competitive advantage, that's a, that's a race to the bottom. And, and excess profits get competed away until you're average at best and potentially mediocre, you know, a lot of the times. Um, whereas when we look, again, with regulation insulating these incumbents, there is no new competition. So each year, volumes decline they raise prices and something happens under the hood that i think goes unappreciated by, by most people it doesn't just offset volume declines or hasn't historically it actually makes ongoing operations incrementally more profitable obviously if you are shipping or producing less you have less associated costs with production but also stepping back further, you have to realize that for cigarettes globally, the average pack of cigarettes, 50% of the retail price is taxes. And so 
when you are shipping fewer units, you are paying fewer taxes. But if you're raising your prices, you're keeping a larger total share of, of that, the retail value, right? So if you look historically, especially for, for something like, like Altria, simply because that's, that's a good example, simply because they, they operate in a, in a single market in the United States, most of their revenues is you know, combustible cigarettes. They have the number one most premium brand. And if you look historically, their operating income goes up and to the right, despite volumes going you know, down and to the right. And their operating margins, like clockwork, just keep expanding, expanding, expanding. And it's done so you know, like clockwork. And I, I, I think that the, the major manufacturers of the world can likely continue to, to kind of maintain that dynamic for a considerable period of time going into the future. Um, if, if you look at affordability rates, US, most lucrative market in the world, still very affordable. Lots of markets, very affordable. Emerging markets as, as discretionary spending goes up, affordability kind of increases or at least levels out. You also see these companies leveraging analytics where they can very precisely manage production, distribution, they can assess sales, and they can adjust accordingly. And it's gotten to the point where, where they basically have, have masterfully optimized their, their working capital, where it, it, it's truly, in my mind, the epitome of a well-oiled machine, well-oiled machine. And if you if you look at the, the the metrics of the these companies, it's just absolutely awing how lucrative they are. If you look at their margins on every level, if you look at return on net tangible assets, again, you, for for their core operations, they need very little to to generate a whole lot of of profit kind of year in and year out. Right. One follow-up here specifically with BTI. What? Um, and like, BTI what, is just... Oh, uh, uh, that's the shorthand for the ticker, I guess, BATS or British American Tobacco. If I, if you catch me saying BTI, that is British American Tobacco. That is the ticker in the United States. Uh, what What's their ge- geographical overview? Because I know they're pretty international... Um, but just, I know that's kind of important because some areas are, have, you know, slower declining volumes than others. And do you think that's really important for the, for British American tobacco in general? Great question. And yes, absolutely critical. Um, so, you know, I've, I focus on the major manufacturers and of the, of the three largest, uh, Philip Morris International, Altria and British American tobacco, they all kind of have unique geographic uh, distributions for operations. And I, I think BAT is incredibly well positioned. Altria operates just in the US, which is fine. It's the most lucrative market in the world. And especially recently with the US dollar appreciating, certainly s- seems to be going well. Um, you look at PM, they operate everywhere outside of the US and ex China. Because in, in China, basically, uh, CNTC is the, the government-owned monopoly, 
right? So, so there, there's no access to that. And the issue with PMI is not being in the US, but reporting earnings in US dollars can, can be rather problematic in terms of uh, foreign exchange dynamics, currency dynamics, right? Uh, British American Tobacco, on the other hand, overlaps the two. Uh, they acquired Reynolds in 2017, which gave them you know, big chunk of the US market. And so right now, about 55% of their operating profits from the US, big chunk in Europe, and then throughout you know, the rest of the world, uh, they derive uh, the rest of their, their revenue sales operating profit. Um, but again, very, very strongly geographically diversified, which I think is, is incredibly important when you're just trying to take a, a truly longer term view on the name. If you're listening to this ad right now, we know you're already a listener to our show, but for our avid listeners, we've also started a paid membership service called Chit Chat Money Plus that extends beyond just our podcast. Every Tuesday, subscribers get access to one not-so-deep-dive research episode that covers everything you need to know about a company. You also get an email newsletter with our written show notes, important charts, a transcript of each show, and access to our Chit Chat Money research files. Chit Chat Money Plus costs $5 a month. You can subscribe directly through Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or if you listen on another platform, click the link in the show notes to go through the simple steps of signing up. If you're a regular listener to the show, we think the membership will provide tons of additional value. On top of the stock research episodes, members will get one Arch Capital Fund episode a month where we outline why we bought, sold, or continue to hold a stock in the Arch Capital Investment Fund, along with shows on our broader investment strategy. Sign up and become a Chit Chat Money Plus subscriber today. We can't wait for you to join our community. All right, Ryan, you had non-combustibles. Yeah, I guess. Do you want to like? Uh, do you want to maybe mention what different for anyone that isn't familiar with British American Tobacco, what the different segments are of their business? Because like, what the combustibles are, what the non-combustibles are, that kind of thing. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so com- combustibles pretty straightforward. I mean, that that's just really just call it cigarettes. There's also roll your own and make your own, uh, you know, uh, other tobacco products. But one that's overall really a negligible part of the business. Also, also it's in a very strong secular decline where, you know, I, I, I don't really factor it into to, you know, how I think of the future prospects of the company. And so combustibles, I equate with cigarettes. And then, then you have non-combustibles, which is really f- four things. Firstly, there's traditional oral and like, like snooze. And, and then there's these new categories, the, the next gen products, which you have vaping, you have heated tobacco products, then you have modern oral. And the three of those are, are what I, you know, aside from cigarettes and cigarettes are still the bulk uh, of the company's sales and, and uh, profits, uh, the the new categories are what I focus on simply because I, I think that they are very misunderstood, and I think that there's a lot of potential for for not just British American Tobacco but for the industry as a whole, um, and I, I believe that potential is be, being largely discounted, uh, broadly speaking. So so, so you have vaping, which Generally, to, to simplify, it uses a synthetic nicotine 
uh, liquid, generally can use some kind of flavoring. You're vaporizing it, inhaling. Heated tobacco um, uses specifically fabricated tobacco plugs that it then heats but does not burn because you're heating, you're, you're aerosolizing uh, a, a, a vapor, able to inhale that, but you're not burning it. And, and you have modern oral, which, uh, you know, the, the most recent products are the TNFPs, which are tobacco-free nicotine pouches. With that, it's extracted nicotine, flavorings, water, uh, like a cellulose pouch or, or similar fabric pouch. And again, um, the fact that none of these are actually combusting, uh, none of them are burning like a cigarette, uh, science seems to show that, that the exposure to harmful or potentially harmful chemicals from these products is substantially reduced. Um, why that is important <laughs> is obviously um, regulations are, are put in place to try to protect the public. Governments have a vested interest in a healthier population, and they should have that vested interest. Um, but as we've seen in the past, as I, as I mentioned, even historically monarchs not being able to stop smokers with the threat of death, you have to accept that there's going to be some level of usage regardless. And if you, you use too heavy handed of regulation or, or you raise taxes too fast, there's clear risks that you push some of the market into the black market that you don't have eyes on, you don't have control of. And, and that becomes much more problematic. Um, and so governments around the world are starting to embrace tobacco harm reduction frameworks in, in their policies. Now, a large part of that is recognizing that while these next-gen products aren't inherently safe, they're substantially safer than cigarettes. And so doesn't it make sense to try to shift consumers that either are using or would use cigarettes to these new products if, you, if your ultimate goal is to have a healthier population? You know, I, I generally take the view that, that that does make a whole lot of sense. And at the same time, we should use regulation to do things like um, restrict underage access and usage of these products. Um, but again, adults... I generally hold the view should be able to make their own decisions and do what they want. So you give them a wide variety of products and let them make their own choices. Now, what, what re really stands out about these, these next-gen products, these reduced-risk products, is that to incentivize consumers switching to them, there are governments that are taxing them at lower rates compared to cigarettes. And that's absolutely critical. Like I mentioned before, uh, around the world, average pack of cigarettes, 50% of the retail price is taxes. Let's say you cut that tax in burden in half. Even with RRPs being not as cheap to make as a cigarette, if you reduce that tax burden, you can make it so that the retail price for the consumer is less than cigarettes and therefore more appealing, while at the same time actually being higher margin and more profitable for the manufacturer. So it seems to be a situation where 
I, I think all these key stakeholders kind of had a, have a vested interest in, in having this just naturally unfold and, and more and more regulatory bodies around the world really pushing the, the, this framework of tobacco harm reduction and promoting these types of products. Do you have any numbers on uh, British American tobacco specifically with their vaping and nicotine pouches? I mean, how, as a percentage wise, how big of the business is it? If you don't have it in front of you, that's okay. Oh, um, um, but, okay. I, got it, I got it up here. All right, good, good. <laughs> <laughs> so so it, it's important to, to realize that these, the major manufacturers, they, they've been researching and developing these products for a very long time, but really in terms of commercial availability and, and, and growth, we didn't really see much until 2016. And it was only in the last couple of years that things kind of really took off. Because you, you think about it, you have, you have to engage in substantial R&D because with regulators, you need to be able to scientifically substantiate your, your health claims, showing that these products are are at least no worse than cigarettes, but realistically, again, science suggests much, much safer. Um, along with that, you have to scale production, you have to focus on distribution, you have to raise consumer awareness, while at the same time, you're greatly restricted in how you can market and advertise. So that's a very difficult hurdle. But in the past few years, for, for British American tobacco specifically, we, we've seen tremendous growth. I think in 2021, for, for their three new categories, their next-gen products, they saw 51% top-line growth. In the first half of 2022, that was 45% revenue growth. But was what's, what's very interesting about that is that that revenue growth is, in, in the first half of 2022, was quite a bit higher than the volume growth that they saw, meaning that they're starting to scale back the steep discounting that they've been doing and are starting to exercise pricing power for these new products. And so as growth continues and they can exercise pricing power, there's again enormous opportunity for them to turn these into to very lucrative segments for Bat as a whole, uh, non-combustible sales made up 14.6% uh, of, of revenue in the first half of 2022. And I believe if you, if you take out traditional oil, the three new categories made up around 10%. And again, when, when you look at your, your growth rates, you know, it, it, it's very likely it's going to decelerate. You can't have too many things in the world growing at 40, 50% each year, year over year, and haven't maintained that. But even with decelerating growth on top of exercising pricing power, uh, I think we're going to witness something pretty impressive for the company. Um, it's important to note that when, when you look at the total investment, and all the costs associated with getting to this point, that these new categories in aggregate aren't profitable for British American tobacco. Certain products in certain markets are currently profitable, but in aggregate, they're still losing money. However, those losses have fallen dramatically. And again, all it takes is continued scaling, exercising pricing power. 
we see that these, which are a non-trivial part of revenue and fast growing, that are still loss creating, if and when that flips to profit generating, and again, if those taxation dynamics for RRPs persist, uh, can be margin accretive to the business as a whole, then I, I think we might be witnessing a, you know, a, a very different story in terms of the potential terminal value of British American tobacco compared to the, the traditional narrative, which is smoking down, volumes down, terminal value gone, dinosaur. All right, that leads to my next question. What do you think is more promising? And I guess the answer could be both, um, vaping, the vaping category, or nicotine pouches? That's a tough question. Um, I, I, I think that overall, that th- this industry and how it unfolds, it's not going to be a winner-takes-all situation. And I think that's going to be true for both categories as, as well as really companies. I, I, I think that there's multiple players that can do exceedingly well. And I think that when you when you look at how diverse the world is, you, you factor in consumer preference, affordability, societal norms, and different regulatory frameworks around the world, there's going to be certain products that just do exceedingly well in some areas while falling flat in, in others. And I, I, I think that all three are likely going to, to do well. With that said, um, I, I, I'm a big proponent of the modern oral segment. I think the tobacco-free nicotine pouches represent something very, very interesting. One, um, from, from the studies I've looked at, they seem to have the lowest risk profile being, being somewhere very close to like uh, nicotine gum and, and just substantially lower, something like you know, 99.8% lo- less risk than, than cigarettes or something like that. But what's great about this product is that they're exceedingly simple. They're, they're fairly cheap to make. Again, they're, they're much lower risk, but they're also extremely discreet to use. You know, s- smoking is not a dis- discreet action, and, and vaping, while a little bit more discreet, is still rather obvious. With these tobacco-free nicotine pouches, you, you pop one in, they don't stain your teeth, they don't give bad breath. You don't have to spit like you do with traditional chew or anything. Um, and for these reasons, you know, you, you, you see a, a growing acceptance rate and a usage rate across a number of different legal age ranges, as well as a, a growing acceptance amongst female users, which is really interesting because for traditional oral tobacco, that's a segment that historically has been something like 95% male users. Um, and I, I, I think, you know, going back for a second, thinking about the, the cheapness of the, the product, you can have very, very wide margins on a product, but have it still be 
very, very affordable for the user. And, and that's going to be something exceedingly important in emerging markets where you can't charge a ton for your product just because there's not that same level of buying power. And you know, when you look at a segment like heated tobacco, where the heated tobacco units that that device uses might be cheaper than cigarettes, the device itself might be prohibitively expensive, right? In, a, in an emerging market that will really uh, cur curb adoption. So yeah, if I have to go with one, I'll, I'll say modern oral, but again, uh, I don't think it's winner takes all. I, I, I think they're all going to look pretty good. Sounds like our old Swedish match pitch. I want one quick follow up <laughs> on that. Um, Swedish match is the number one player in nicotine pouches, at least in the United States. And I think maybe if you add it up globally, probably globally at this point, but mm -hmm. British American tobacco, I believe is second. I mean, what kind of progress have they had there? It seems like they've really done well the last few years in the Nordics and kind of expanding throughout Europe. Yeah, uh, you're exactly right about that. Swedish match is is, is still the the dominant player, and critically, they they still have the lion's share of the U.S. market, which which is just wildly profitable. Um, British American tobacco, they they have their own modern oil product uh, under the brand of Velo, and if you if you look in the Scandinavian countries, it's done exceedingly well has continued to incrementally take share from Swedish Match in, in multiple countries. They're just completely dominating, you know, 60, 70, 80% plus of the market and, and seemingly growing very well throughout other parts of Europe. Now, British American tobacco, as I mentioned before, they all also operate in the US, but the Velo in the US is actually a different product than the one we've seen succeeding in the Scandinavian countries. And from what I've seen by all accounts is that the US version is not just inferior to their European version, it's inferior to almost all other modern oral products where uh, consumer accounts, you know, state comes in cheap, flimsy, uh, plastic cans, poor packaging, poor labeling. The pouches just don't feel as good. There's excess powder in the cans. The, the flavors are a little off. There's um, there's you know weird aftertaste and just overall not as good as an experience in, in any measurable way. And so that definitely shows up in the U.S. numbers. Uh, in the past few years, uh, Velo has shrunk in market share, shrunk in volumes, while at the same time, uh, Zin is, is shrinking in market share, but growing volumes at a healthy clip, and Altria's on oral nicotine pouch is both taking market share and growing volumes. Um, so, so British American Tobacco has stated they have a PMTA pending for, for the other version, but there's no guarantee it gets into the United States. Um, I'm not assuming it does anytime soon. Uh, I do think if the other version gets into the United States, I think that could be a game changer. Uh, again, from, from all the accounts of what I've heard from user experiences, as well as the, the numbers in terms of BATS reporting and independent reporting, uh, the, the European version, if it, if it gets in the U.S., should do exceedingly well.
Okay, let's talk a little bit about uh, BTI's valuation specifically. Um, how are you valuing the stock today? Um, can you give maybe just some numbers for, uh, so listeners maybe have some context around what the valuation looks like? Sure. So I think it's important to start off by by remembering that the the tobacco industry as a whole operates on, on pretty compressed multiples. Just if you look at BAT right now, it's at about nine and a half time, times EV to EBITDA, uh, which is you know considerably lower than quite a few companies out there. And it's important to note that like while you can compare that to other companies, this is also an industry that has very minimal reinvestment needs. So when you factor in things like CapEx and DNA and, and even, even R&D for, for the new, new products, it's incredibly capital light. And so you have incredibly high margins, you're trading at a, a compressed multiple, it's technically at a double digit free cash flow yield right now. Um, if, you, if you just look at the, the s- simple numbers, you can also look at, you know, they, they have a 65% target payout ratio of adjusted EPS denoted in, in pound sterling. They have a yield right now that's sitting about 7%. This, this year, they started a buyback program to, to run through the whole year that would be about Two billion pounds, and they they've signaled that they intend to continue to do buybacks in the future. So you have a seven percent ish yield, greater than two percent buyback yield. Along with this, since two thousand seventeen, and as they've been growing all these new products that are fast growing and are potentially going to to flip to profitability, uh, they've been meaningfully deleveraging. Right since that that 2017 acquisition of Reynolds, and so all it really takes is tepid growth, and really for the core business not to degrade and and see volumes decline faster than the rest of the business, you know, c- continues to to do well. And I I think if you if you look at the numbers, it has a real good shot of achieving that. And so, you know, that easily puts you into double-digit territory. And if, if things start to look any better, if, if, if cigarette volumes, you know, uh, hold up a little bit better or they can exercise better pricing power, or maybe cigarette volumes decline faster, but that's because they're being cannibalized by these new categories that they can scale, raise pricing on. Um, there, there's... All, all kinds of scenarios where, where maybe you know a low double-digit uh, IRR gets pushed into the teens, mid-teens, maybe even high teens. All right, one one quick follow-up there, and this might just be wishful thinking because we know that they're going to have the payout ratio. But would you rather have them allocate to buybacks, given that they have these growth categories that maybe other investors can take advantage of if they have a lower share count, you know, going forward? It's a good question. Um, you know, both both dividends and buybacks are, are are capital allocation decisions that are, are similar to each other. They're 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 a form of, of returning capital to shareholders, right? 
excess capital. And so I would say I'm most concerned or I'm most interested in making sure that management is focusing on deploying capital where it needs to go. And so at the end of the day, if they, they look at their new categories, they look at other investment opportunities to reinvest into the, into the business. And if, if they think that they're meeting all of their targets and they're taking advantage of the best opportunities and there's still cash left over, I, I think the, uh, buybacks are probably the, the route to go. Um, again, I, I, I think they'll continue to deleverage. Uh, they, they aim to, to keep their adjusted uh, EBITDA to EV, uh, adjusted debt to EBITDA, sorry, um, between the two to three range. And I think them getting it down to like two and a half is probably a reasonable level and they'd signal, signal as much. So they accomplished that. And, and if things continue to do even just a little bit better, just incremental, just minimal growth. Um, yeah, I think, I think they'll have extra, extra cash and yeah, I'd love to see it go to buybacks. I mean, it has to go somewhere, right? It could, exactly. it could certainly keep it on the balance sheet. Rainy day fund never hurt anybody. And again, that might allow them to take advantage of other opportunities in the future. But when, when it's trading that, what I view as such a depressed multiple, I, I think buybacks are, are incredibly advantageous right here. All right. Well, we have one more question. Unless Ryan, you have any follow? No more follow-ups? All right. This has been a great overview of BTI, but we got to finish it up with the risks here. Pre-mortem, what do you think, I mean, what have you been looking at as maybe any sort of risk? Has it been competition? Uh, I guess, you know, maybe we already discussed how there's really no competition, but what, what could go wrong here with an investment in BTI at these levels? Yeah. I mean, that, that's obviously a question you always have to ask yourself when you're, you're selecting individual assets or equities or whatever it might be. And, and I think for British American tobacco, there's a long list of, things that could make this go not well for the company. And, and so, you know, in my own research and writing, I've said as much, I think at least for the industry, British American tobacco might have the widest range in potential outcomes. Um, so some of the risks that I spend quite a bit of time thinking about are one, obviously future regulation in that historically, you know, my, my core thesis, and I think it shows up in the numbers, is that regulation has actually been a net positive for the major manufacturers, really blocking out competition, insulating them, allowing them, you know, to exercise that immense pricing power. Um, and and my, my concern is, you know, just because it's done that in the past doesn't mean it will continue to do that in the future. If, if, governments begin to stray away from, or uh, governments don't accept tobacco harm reduction frameworks in their, in their regulation uh, policy decisions, or if they decide they're gonna, for some reason, start taxing these products substantially higher, um, or, or may, maybe they decide that, hey, we're, we're gonna target these specific types of products and we're gonna just ban them entirely. And we're just going to let cigarettes continue to dominate our our market. You know, 
the, those types of things could happen and they probably will happen in, in certain markets. Um, and, and, and so I think that's something to be cognizant of. I think, as, again, as I've laid out, I think that all the major stakeholders kind of seem to benefit fr from having things shift towards tobacco harm reduction policies. But um, yeah, we'll see how things unfold in that regard. Um, similarly, I, I think it's important to remember that the, these new categories are, are aiming to kind of bolster the terminal value uh, of, of these companies, British American tobacco, especially. Like we know that eventually cigarettes will be a thing of the past. I think it's going to take much longer than many people say, but eventually they will be gone. And so what's left over? It's like, well, you'll have these new categories, but perhaps one of the greatest risks is that while with cigarettes, you have this tremendous brand loyalty where, you know, if, if somebody goes to buy their pack of cigarettes and the convenience store doesn't have their brand, they will leave and they'll go somewhere else. They'll find their brand, right? They're not going to sell for something else. Um, with, with these new products that have only been around for, for, you know, a little over half a decade, if brands aren't able to establish themselves and build that consumer affinity. And if regulation no longer kind of boxes out small competitors, there could be a flood of competing products. And, and without that brand affinity, then it becomes a, a pricing game. And if you have a pricing game and a race, it's a race to the bottom. And that's exactly the opposite of, of what has happened for, you know, the legacy product. So, so I think that's a tremendous risk that shouldn't go uh, unnoticed. Okay. Well, um, I think, or do you have any other thoughts? Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, there, there, there's so many risks. I mean, I'll, I'll touch on, <laughs> I'll touch on two, two more of the, the most obvious It's one like, you know, that operates globally. They are, at risk in terms of things like deglobalization or all kinds of wrenches thrown into the gears that is the global supply chain and, and also uh, forex dynamics you know they, they operate in a lot of different currencies they, and, and and you know it transactionally and, and translationally those have different you know uh, headwinds and tailwinds for the company but Ultimately, you know, uh, it, it is a threat to the company, I think, long term. And, and while they, they derive about 55% of their operating profits in the U.S. dollar, um, and the U.S. dollar has been strengthening, that whole you know, U.S. dollar wrecking ball for the rest of the world, there, there's ramifications just to the health of the global economy. Again, you know, this industry is rather resilient through all throughout economic cycles, but you know, it's definitely something to, to be mindful of. And then, you know, the, the last thing I'll, I'll definitely have to touch on, just maybe not in terms of operations, but in terms of shareholder returns, is, you know, the, the ESG movement. You know, the, the, this company is in an industry that is largely vilified. And there've been a lot of proponents in the ESG space that have been pushing for institutional investors to, to sell their positions, not touch the space, been pushing for banks to not do business with the industry. And 
there there've been a lot of questions around the terminal value of these businesses. And so because of that, their multiples have contracted. And it wouldn't surprise me in the least to see that continue. Even though I think, you know, British American tobacco is attractively priced at this multiple, it can continue to, to re-rate and go even lower. There's no law saying it, it, it can't, right? And so I, I think at least in the short and medium term, uh, that seems like an obvious risk. Um, again, as somebody who's looking at this business from a fundamental perspective, that really doesn't concern me. I think, you know, if their multiple gets pushed down even more, again, as they're growing their buybacks, I think on a longer, longer term outlook, that's a net benefit. You know, you can't say that for all companies, especially recently high flying tech companies where they sell off and, you know, some people cope by saying, oh, great, you know, now it's on sale and I can buy more, great, and it doesn't matter. But those companies, if they're not profitable and they rely on heavy stock-based compensation, like share price definitely matters um, for, for British American tobacco and the tobacco industry broadly. Like stock-based compensation is, is negligible. It, it's practically zero. And so you see the stock price going down and they're starting to engage in substantial buybacks, then you know, a cheaper share price is just going to, to uh, have a, have a uh, multiplicative effect as the multiple continues to, to compress downwards. Okay, perfect. Well, I think that's going to do it. It's all the questions we have. For any listeners that wanna keep up with you, what is the best place to do that? Yeah. So. Uh, currently writing on Substack. So if you want to check out my writing, I cover, uh, have been covering the tobacco industry pr- pretty in depth, but cover, you know, other companies and we'll be probably branching out in the future. You can check out the writing. Um, it's invariant.substack.com uh, or you can reach out on Twitter, Devin Lassar, which is D-E-V-I-N-L-A-S-A-R-R-E. And uh, yeah, DMs are open. So happy to chat with whoever. Awesome. Well, that is going to do it. We want to remind our listeners that Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital. So clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thanks again to Devin for coming on the show. We'll see you guys next time. 